actually never do this, uh, but the new song that we did this morning, uh, like I really love that song. And uh, so I'm actually going to ask the praise team, if you don't mind, could you just do the chorus for us a couple of times? And let's just sit and just let them like just sing the words over us, if that's all right. Little little license for the pastor this morning, right? Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living Something went tragically wrong. <laughs> Real quick, I asked him to do that. <laughs> Our very talented praise team did exactly what I asked him to do. Train wrecked the song to demonstrate one thing, to demonstrate what happens when people do their own thing as opposed to being united. Right? I mean, that really clearly shows the difference between being on the same page and a bunch of people just kind of randomly doing their own thing. So thank you, y'all. Good job messing up the song. All right. If you have your Bible, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, and we're in a series entitled Extraordinary. What we're doing in the series is that we're exploring the extraordinary nature of what is Christian belief and what is Christian life. And today we're discussing something that is actually extremely dear to my own heart, and that is corporate worship. What it is that we, what is it that we do when we gather? Like the gathering of God's people for for worship, folks. And while this is not something that is limited simply to what it is that we do on a Sunday morning, something like a small group that we might have or a prayer service like we might have or an anthem not like we do here, all of that is corporate worship. But typically we think of it in terms of Sunday morning. Right? When they say that we're going to church, what we mean is that we're going to a corporate worship service. And for many people, this is just ordinary. Well, that's not true. This, what we're doing right now, folks, this is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. So Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10. At some point, all y'all are going to have this memorized by the time we get through this sermon series. Jesus says in that verse, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that day, referring to believers, that they may have life and have it abundantly in that word abundantly in the original greek is parasos which means extraordinary so what jesus is saying in that verse is that i came to give you extraordinary life in john chapter 10 the, the entire context of that text of scripture is about relationship with jesus so in that text he says i'm the shepherd you're the sheep my sheep know my voice i know you by name i lead you you listen. Everything is about relationship with Jesus. So that's what it means to have extraordinary life. We have a relationship with Christ. Well, here's the thing. That we, when we enter into a relationship with God, we also at the same time enter into a relationship with God's people. It's a package deal. We become part of the church. So extraordinary living includes being part of a local church in which we gather together to worship, which we gather together for worship. So just know this, a Rotary Club meeting is ordinary. A Kiwanis Club meeting is ordinary. A PTA meeting or PTG meeting is ordinary. A church meeting is not 
ordinary folks. This is extraordinary. This is, you know what this is? It's a bunch of sinners who have tasted of the grace of God and received new life in Christ, and we are guaranteed forever to be in God's presence. So when we gather together as a group of sinners who've been forgiven, we gather to worship our all-powerful creator together. We gather together to pray to our loving Father together. We gather together to serve our Savior together. We gather together in order to learn the ways of our Lord together. Together, together, together. Folks, there's nothing ordinary about this. This is extraordinary. This time, this space, this company that we are enjoying, our gathering is extraordinary. So today I'm teaching on what corporate worship is in some, in a sense, what it means for us as Anthem, as Anthem Church. This is something that I've been needing to teach on for quite some time. And I've been like kind of kicking the can down, down the road for, for various reasons. Uh, and the reason that this really needs to be addressed is because this is really odd. This group, us. I always say that we are an eclectic bunch. By that, that's just a nice way of saying we are a very weird bunch in here. And here's what I mean by that. Um, and we're not going to ask for anyone to raise hands, but if we ask people to raise hands, folks, we have very diverse backgrounds represented here, people with very different past church experiences. So in this room right now are people that come from Baptist backgrounds, Methodist backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, Lutheran backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Pentecostal backgrounds, traditional backgrounds, contemporary backgrounds, liturgical backgrounds. We are a hodgepodge. We, in terms of church, we are a mutt. We are a, the mutt of churches. It's what we are. Praise God. It, it's, it's one of the things that I do love about us. And so we come here on a Sunday morning uh, with very different past experiences. And what that means is that we enter into this time with very unique assumptions, with some, a few different beliefs, perhaps, and even expectations about how to do it and what to get out of it and all of that. And so for those reasons, I think that we need to have this conversation and figure it out because God has brought us all together, all these weird, bizarre streams converging and dumping into this one little thing called Anthem Church, and our role is to figure it out, make it work, get all Tim Gunn. Like, it's time to make it work in here with our different backgrounds. So we're discussing this because if we're not on the same page when it comes to corporate worship, our Sunday morning time will be a train wreck like the song that we just heard a while ago. So here's what happened. In case you didn't know, let me share some musical knowledge with y'all. So we have Joey. Joey started on the guitar, and he was in the right key, and he was singing the right words. But over here was Brad, and Brad broke out into a Leonard Skinner solo in a completely different key than the song was in. What happened on bass over there is that John started playing the song at twice the beats per minute. So the song is supposed to be at 78 beats per minute. He started playing it at 160. The hard one was what Nathan did because the song is written in 4-4 four, four time. He started playing it in 3-4 like a waltz on crack. <laughs> Krista, bless her heart, started singing words to something else. I don't even know what song she was singing. And Robin got all pitchy, right, sharp and flat and loud and crazy. Like it was just craziness. So let me ask you, what is better? Just from a musical perspective, what's better, for the praise team to be united or for everyone to do their own thing? Like, it's very clear. Like, it's always better. It's always better. Like, unity is always better. When it comes to music, unity is always better. When it comes to life, home, marriage, church, worship, unity is always, always, always better. So extraordinary living requires unity in our corporate worship. Everybody follow? Everybody follow? I hope so. 
it's too late to go in a different direction. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those verses that we read right there, those verses are about corporate worship. Verse 19 specifically is talking about our singing with one another, which is one of the elements of a gathering, right? It's not just music. We pray, we preach, we teach, right? It's fellowship in the true sense of what that word means. So singing is just part of it. In Ephesians 5, we're told about corporate worship. In those few verses, we're told about corporate worship in the context of an entire life of worship, which is what all of Ephesians chapter 5 is about. So look at verse 1, Ephesians 5 verse 1. It really tells us what worship is. Be imitators of God. You want a definition of what a worshiper of God is? A worshiper of God is an imitator of God. You worship what you imitate, you imitate what you worship. That's what it is. So be an imitator of God. That's true good worship of the Lord. In verse 2, it says to walk in love. That's worship. Like we, as we walk in love, we're worshiping God. In verse 3, we're told to avoid sexual immorality. In verse 4, we're told to control our language, to, to watch how we speak. In verse 8, we're told to walk as children of light, to not walk in darkness, but walk in, as children of light. In verse 15, we're told, don't, don't act a fool. Be wise. Be wise. Verses 22, 23, 24, and, so, and then on, talks about our conduct in our marriage, how husbands and wives are to be toward one another. But the point of all of Ephesians chapter 5 is that right and good worship is a lifestyle. We tend to think of it simply in terms of an experience. It's not an experience. It is a lifestyle of right and good, godly talking and walking and conduct performed before God. It's not just Sunday mornings. It's between the Sundays. It's all the time. It's every part of us, right? It's how we speak. It's how we talk. It's how we walk. It's what we do. All of it is worship as we're imitating the Lord. So the tendency is for many of us to think of worship simply in terms of music or, or to think that, 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 that it's just that. Well, worship is more than music. Worship is more than singing, and it's way more than just singing with other believers. Folks, I love music. I have always loved music. I grew up in the 80s. I'm a big Van Halen fan. Like, I mean, that's, I would have had the mullet, but Hector didn't let me. Like, it, it would have happened, but he just, he said, no, not in my house, all right? Like, I, I, I just, I love the music. I love it. And it's not just 80s or 70s stuff, 60s stuff, 90s, okay, everything after 2000, awful. But anyway, I'm the old guy now, so. Um, I love music. I play some guitar. I play at it. Like, I enjoy music, and I, I really love worshiping through music. I, there's just something about it that I find wonderful. I love singing with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. My favorite moment on a Sunday morning is always when the, the instruments get a little quiet and I hear the congregation. Like it is a, an amazing and a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But we have to know that singing with other people is not the pinnacle of worship. It's not. Singing is not more spiritual than any other activity that we perform unto the Lord. The Spirit of God is not more active when there's music involved. It just doesn't happen that way. The Holy Spirit is just as much as involved when you are at home praying in silence. The Holy Spirit is just as much at work when you're reading the Bible on your own or in a Bible study. The Holy Spirit is just as active when you are serving, whether it's teaching Sunday school or whether you're serving your neighbor. 
I mean, I clearly, when we get together and we sing here, that it's worship. But according to Ephesians 5, so is how I conduct myself during the week. So I could say, who cares how loud and wonderful our singing is on Sunday morning if I am speaking harshly to my wife during the week? And I could say, who cares how exuberant and wonderful our music and singing is on Sunday morning if parents are not discipling their children or if we're just participating in immoral activities? Because right and good worship is way more than just music. It is a lifestyle lived unto the Lord where we're growing as imitators of God, where I'm watching how I speak and I'm watching how I walk and I'm watching my conduct. Not just singing on Sunday mornings, but how I act between the Sundays. So now knowing that that is the context in the fullness of Ephesians 5, now we can actually really start breaking down the verses that I read a little while ago. So in verse 18, it says, don't get drunk, which is debauchery. What is debauchery? We don't use that word. So let me translate it. Debauchery is bad. (laughs) Debauchery is muy malo. Very bad or very malo. So it's debauchery. Drunkenness is debauchery. Drunkenness is a state in which a person has lost their inhibitions, right? The person has lost the ability to control themselves. That's what drunkenness is. So when someone's drunk, their, their motor skills are impaired, right? That's why a drunk person cannot walk in a straight line. They stumble, they stagger, they fall down, they can't keep their balance. They can't walk straight. Interesting that the text says, walk in love, walk in light. And it says, don't get drunk, which physically is the opposite, right? Stammering, stumbling. When someone's drunk, right, it affects their speech, so they can't speak good, which is Harnett County proper grammar. Like when someone's drunk, they don't speak well, meaning they slur their speech. They can't get their words out. It doesn't, like, it's, it's inaudible sometimes. It's just syllables. When someone's drunk, they're, their mental clarity is impaired. So they're acting the fool. Like the text says, don't be foolish, but be wise. Well, drunkenness can't help but lead to unwise, foolish behavior. What happens anytime you hear someone say, hold my beer? What follows after that, I promise you, is unwise, foolish behavior? Some of you that are smiling, you're confessing right now. Drunkenness adversely affects our emotions, does it not? Anyone ever been around an angry drunk? Why do, why do bars have bouncers? You lose the ability to control your emotions. What about the person who's like, they go up to a complete stranger when they're drunk, I love you, man. It's cliche, but it's true. Like the person like has no control over their emotions. What about the sad crier? Why is there a tear in your beer? Right? They're drinking and they're all emotional. Like, like when you drink, you have no capacity to control your words, your walking, your actions, your emotions. That's why we're told in verse 18, instead of being drunk, be filled with the Spirit. So a few years ago, in a conversation with a fellow pastor, and this is what he said to me, and I don't even remember why we were talking about this, but he actually said, well, instead of being drunk on alcohol, we need to be drunk on the Spirit, of which I'm like, well, that can't be right. That is illogical. Like, does that even make sense? How can the opposite of being drunk be being drunk? Like, that, that regardless of what the substance is that makes me drunk, drunk is drunk. Like, it doesn't make sense that instead of being drunk with alcohol, I should be drunk with the, the spirit. The opposite of being drunk is what? Being sober. It's being sober. Whatever I might experience when I am drunk on wine The opposite is true when I'm filled with the Spirit. In other words, I am never more in control of my mind and my heart, my will, and my body than when God's Spirit is active in me. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Self-control. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 1 Corinthians 14, which actually teaches on a corporate worship gathering, how to go about it, says, hey, if there's any who speak in a tongue, and we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts next week, all right, so just a little teaser about next week. So if there's anyone who speaks in a tongue, let there only be two or three, two or three, that speak. What if they're four? What if they're ten? No, only two or three. So that means that some have the opportunity to control whether or not to exercise that gift right and then it says to do it in order meaning not at the same time but one person then another and then another and then only if there is an interpreter in the room so if there's not an interpreter then it shouldn't happen at all period you follow so it, it paul tells us in first corinthians 14 verse 40 when he's talking about all this he says all things should be done decently and in Order, meaning thoughtfully and disciplined and in control. So that's what God wants for our lives. He wants our lives, whether individually or as a collective body, a corporate body, to be in, in control. His spirit is at work in believers that we may be sober, lucid, clear, deliberate, thoughtful and disciplined. We are never more in control of our emotions than when God's spirit is at work in us. Never. You're never more able to take your thoughts captive than when the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You're never more aware of your surroundings than when the Holy Spirit's at work in you. You're never more capable of walking in love, walking in light, walking the right way than when the Holy Spirit's at work in you. You're never more capable of speaking the right way then when the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you're never more able to love God and love others. And that's key for this text, love others, than when God's Holy Spirit is active and at work in you. Is that clear? So, the entire chapter is about a life, the fullness of a life of worship. There's a few verses in the middle that talk about corporate worship, which is what we're talking about. Then right in smack dab of the middle of that is what we just discussed. God doesn't want us to be out of control. He wants us to be in control. So now we really need to unpack verse 18. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So I need to offer a bit of a disclaimer or in a bit of a warning here. Uh, because I suspect that what you're about to hear over the next few minutes uh, it's going to butt up against your assumptions and much of maybe what you thought about what those words mean. And I would suspect is that this is going to be true of 99.9% of us in in the room. And uh, in the first Thor movie, if you're like a Marvel person, in the first Thor movie, there's Odin, Thor's hammer, Thor's hammer, Thor's dad. And he's referring to Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, however you pronounce it, and he refers to the hammer, and he, he calls it a weapon to destroy and a tool to build, a fit companion for a king. That's what he says. Yeah, well, I quoted Odin. That's right. He refers to the hammer as a good weapon to destroy and a good tool to build, a fit companion for a king. Folks, not, not to get cheesy or ridiculous here, but Jesus is king, and his word is the hammer. And, and what we got to understand is that God's word has the power to destroy wrong beliefs and in its place to build right beliefs. So anytime that we open God's word, whether we're at home by ourselves or it's a Sunday morning, we're like church, right, a sermon, whether we're in Bible study, it's always demolition work that's happening, always. Our assumptions, our presuppositions, our belief, everything's being challenged in a way, and God will take a wrecking ball if it's wrong. And so what, what I'm asking is, is here, it's like, are we willing for God to do his good work this morning? 
Are we willing to approach this verse in the next few minutes with an open mind and an open heart and with open hands? Say, Lord, if I'm wrong, please demo, demo this down and build what is right in its place. That's what I'm, I'm hoping happens here. So in verse 18, it says, be filled. All right. Grammatically, that's in the passive voice. What I, what I mean by that is that the action of being filled is not something that is performed by us. It is something that is done to us. God gives the filling. He does the action. He's the one that provides the filling. We're recipients of it. We are passive in it. We receive that which God does. What that tells us is that we, don't, we can't do anything in order to be filled. It's God who does it. So I can't manufacture it. I can't conjure it up. I can't, it's, it's not about so much what I do. It is completely about what God does. You've got to understand this. Eh? God does not respond to our passion. God responds to his promises. Got to let that sink in. God does not respond to our passion. He responds to his promises. He has made a promise to fill his people. Our role is faith. I will put my faith in God's promise because I know that he's always true to his promises. So it's not about how much I flex spiritually or anything like that. I should be humble. I'm depending on him. I should pray for it. But he doesn't do it because of that. He does it because he is true to his promises. He fills us. The second thing we got to know about filling, and this is where it really gets challenging, it's what does it mean to be filled? The, the Greek word, pleureo, be filled, means to be fulfilled. See, our English translation leaves something a little off. The word means to be fulfilled in the sense of being made complete. So when it says to be filled, what it's referring to is to becoming the person that God created you to be. That's what it means to be filled. Become the person that God created you to be. Live the life that God instructs you to live. That's what it means to be filled. Being filled is not so much an experience as much as it is God's active, gracious hand at work in us in such a way that he's completing the work that he began the moment that you place your faith in Jesus. That's what it means to be filled. It, it means to be sanctified. God, when we pray, God, Fill me with your spirit. What we're praying is, God, finish the work of sanctification, of making me less sinful and more like Jesus every day. That's what it means to be filled. It is that God's spirit is at work in us. He's working in us in such a way that we grow as imitators of God. That's what it means. Fulfill me, meaning make me like Jesus. That's what it means. Make me a complete worshiper, someone who worships, yes, with singing and exuberance on the Sunday morning, but between the Sundays, too, in my words, my conduct, my living, my walking. Th that verb, be filled, it's a weird verb of which we don't have an English equivalent to. It actually means always be being filled, like continuously. It's not like a one-time thing. It's something that should happen all of the time. So instead of being drunk, and out of my mind and out of control in my sin, let God in me and in you, let God always be actively doing the work of making you more like Jesus. That's what the verse is saying. Be fulfilled in Christ. Be made complete in Christ. Well, that's what that verse means. This is, this is revolutionary to some of us. Because this, this thinking in mind got corrected a while ago. We tend to think this is an experience, and that's not what it's saying. Because why in the world would the Apostle Paul say, be filled with the Spirit? And why does he run into worship at that point, corporate worship? What he's, it's, it's amazing. He says, be made complete in Christ. And the first thing he runs to after making that statement is, now consider how you worship with others. Like, it's an important thing to recognize. So let's, I want to read verses 19 through 21 again. So again, he says, be filled with the Spirit, be made complete in Christ. And then he follows up 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. God, let's put this together. I, I, I'm, I, feel like, I really feel like I'm in classroom mode right now. Be filled with the Spirit. Be made complete. Become the person that God wants you to be. And then, he says, address one another a certain way and submit to one another. What he's saying is, as you become more like Jesus, you actually become more loving to the person next to you. And nothing should show our love for one another more than when we are together worshiping God. What these verses show us is that in our worship, there is a vertical element in which we express our heartfelt love and adoration to God for who he is and everything that he's done for us. There is a vertical honoring of God. And simultaneously, at the same time, there's a horizontal element in which we are addressing one another as we do this. And that's why that verse 21 throws in submitting to one another that's an ugly word isn't it submit in the bible it's one of the most beautiful words in all the scripture you know what submit means love it means to love someone that's all it means submitting to one another meaning loving one another what does it mean to submit it simply means to put the interests of another person ahead of yours that's all it means it's like i have certain preferences I have certain desires, I have certain needs, I have certain wants, but you know what? I'm going to let them take a back seat because I care more about the good of another. What these verses tell us, the point is that our worship should reflect the gospel. That our worship should reflect Jesus. Our worship should reflect the cross. It is vertical clearly and horizontal simultaneously. Jesus Christ is God the son and he submitted himself out of love for the father and out of love for us he submitted himself and he left his throne in heaven and he came into this world he took on flesh he took on human form he submitted himself god almighty submitted himself <clears throat> he submitted himself by taking our sin upon his shoulders paying the price of our sin upon that cross taking our judgment, that which we deserve. He sacrificed himself. He submitted himself to death and even death on a cross. Why? Out of love for the Father and out of love for us. He did so for the glory of the Father and for our eternal good. That's the gospel. It's both. Do you see that? It's vertical and it's horizontal. And if we have benefited from Jesus' submission, then our worship should reflect his submission in which we love God. But while we're loving God, we are loving each other. We are addressing one another. We are submitting to one another. True worship reflects Jesus, reflects the cross, reflects the gospel. And it's vertical and horizontal. And that has two extremely important applications for church. The first is that of discipleship. This, what we're told here has implications for discipleship. Colossians 3 verse 16 says that our singing should take place or takes place in the context of teaching one another God's truth. It takes place in the context of encouraging one another in God's wisdom. So I think it's important for us to start thinking of our worship gathering more as a team sport. And there's no I in team. The emphasis of the Bible is we, us. It's not me, I. We're the people of God, not the persons of God. This is a team sport. So when I worship with my teammates, I should do so in a way that I'm willing to sacrifice my preferences and my needs and my wants so that you could get advanced so that you may grow as a love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled follower of Jesus. And if my worship 
in some way distract or deters or is an obstacle to you growing in your knowledge of the gospel, then I need to suppress whatever it is that that thing is that I want to do for your good. You understand? I submit to you in my worship. The other application here refers to gospel mission. I think that this is particularly cool. Psalm 96 verses 1 through 3 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Vertical, right? Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about worship. How come all of a sudden we're talking about evangelism? Declare his glory among the nations. Wait a minute. Which is it, Lord? You want me to worship or you want me to go on a mission trip? His, declare his marvelous works among the peoples. See, the thing is, it's going to be different in heaven, but on earth, worship and mission go hand in hand. Worship and evangelism go hand in hand. There's no greater act of worship on planet earth than telling someone about Jesus. And when you tell someone about Jesus, you're worshiping the Lord. So here, we sing to God, and as we sing to God, we're telling of his salvation we praise god among people who don't know god we cannot assume that just because someone walks through these doors on a sunday morning that they have that they are a follower of jesus therefore our worship our collective worship on the sunday morning should be ordered and offered unto the lord in such a way that helps that person come to know christ our worship is vertical it's unto God, but man, we want to draw people unto the Lord. So if what I do is an obstacle or what I do is a distraction, then we, shouldn't, we should suppress that to be loving, to draw people to the Lord. So folks, yeah, we sing. We sing to God. We have to. Like, how can you not? You got to sing. He's extraordinary. He's an extraordinary God of love. He's an extraordinary God of power. He, we praise him for his greatness. We express our heartfelt gratitude. Folks, he died for us on the cross. You can't keep that in. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. We praise him for his grace. We declare our great love and our loyalty to him, but we do so in a way that also shows our love for others that they may come to know him. We worship God in such a way that it encourages other people to grow in their faith. Corporate worship is not just something we do with one another. It's something that, that we do for one another. It's honoring and helpful. Vertical, horizontal. We honor God, praise God, while helping the person next to us. You see that? This thing that we do when we gather is extraordinary. Man. We are a bunch of sinners saved by grace and here we're to be of one heart one mind one spirit one accord one purpose declaring the greatness of god i love verse 19 it says we're to make a melody for those of you who aren't musical not that i am but i pretend to be a melody is the right notes in the right order in the right key in the right time that's what a melody is. A melody is musical unity. That's what it is. And that is exactly what our worship on Sunday morning should sound and look like. It should look like unity. So it's not a bunch of people just doing whatever it is that they want to do. It is a bunch of people, and this is why I love corporate worship, saying the same thing to the same God at the same time. Like we're never more unified as a body than when we are singing the same thing at the same time to the same Lord. We gather to make a melody, folks. That's extraordinary. So a few years ago, all right, I'm at a classroom mode. All right, got to throw in a few illustrations here. A few years ago, in a conversation with a guy I know, and uh, he shared with me that when he prays at home, he goes into his room, locks the door, gets naked, <laughs> and prays. All right, man, I didn't need to know that. It's not my thing. 
Uh, I can't say it's wrong. I can't say it's sinful. I can't say it's unbiblical. I mean, by himself, he wants to pray naked before the Lord. I, you know what? If that's what he wants to do, fine. Not my thing. Now, what if he happens to show up on a Sunday morning, and Phil Harp, one of our elders, comes up to do the Sunday morning corporate prayer, and my man out there is like, oh, it's prayer time. <laughs> we, we might take issue with that. Why? Well, there are lots of reasons, actually. <laughs> it would absolutely disrupt the melody of our worship. It would absolutely mess up the harmony of our worship. It would completely get in the way of worship. It wouldn't draw anyone to Jesus, I promise you. Not in a good way, anyway. No one would grow in their faith as a result of that. It would be disruptive, and it would be a complete distraction. And here's the thing. You know what? They have freedom to worship individually however they want to. Now, if they want to, like, sacrifice kittens, I would take issue with that. That's unbiblical. But I can't say that him being naked alone in the presence of God is unbiblical. He has freedom to do that. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying consider your context. Like, what someone may do in the privacy of their own worship may not be best in a corporate setting. There's much freedom to be enjoyed, but we have to be discerning, humble. It does this help the person next to me? Does this really honor the Lord? Like, I think it's really interesting that verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. To the person who says, I'm honoring God and I'm worshiping God without any care of the person next to us, it's actually not reverencing Christ. So whatever it is that they're calling worship is not worship. It completely goes against what these verses say. Our worship has to be vertical and horizontal. We love God, and we love God, and we love others while we're at it. And if it's not loving toward others, we can't in good conscience call it worship. Because what did Jesus do? Out of love, he died for us. Like, it's conflicting if that were the case. So what we do in private is not the same thing necessarily that we do in public. I kiss Jamie differently when we're alone than I might kiss her when we're in public. Yeah. That's, that's right. She knows that voodoo that I do. Why not? I mean, there, there, there's some things that are good and right in one place and not in another. There's some things that are helpful in one setting and not another. There's some things that are appropriate in one setting and not another. Here's a principle for all of us to apply all the time. Just because it is permissible does not mean that it is profitable. Just because there's liberty does not mean that there's license. Just because you can does not mean that you should. I love James Brown. Man, I, I don't think people appreciate the musical genius of James Brown. And I remember years ago watching this documentary on James Brown. And everyone that he ever played with said he is by far the most talented musical mind and musician we have ever known. Like, everyone. The greatest musical ear that all of them said, no one hears the way that James Brown does. So um, he had a policy. And if, if you know anything about James Brown, back in the day especially, it was full orchestra. Huge brass section, huge rhythm section, percussion section. It wasn't like five people on the stage. We were talking about like 30 people and background vocals and all of that. And he had a policy. If you're in concert and you miss one note, you get fined. One note, $500 which in the 50s was an incredible amount of money for a musician. One note, you get fined. So there's this black and white footage, which is amazing. Like, you can't really make it out. It's grainy. And, like, you really can't make out too much of the music. Right? So, you know, it's 50s audio, but you're watching it. 
and it, he's on stage, right? And my, my man is just doing his thing, and he's singing, and you got the background vocals going, and the orchestra's going, and the brass section's doing their thing, and it's loud. The crowd is hopping, right? And in the middle of the song, and you can't even hear it on the audio, but he did, he turns to one of the guys, a trumpet player, he says, I gotcha, I gotcha. Like in the incredible noise of the moment, he heard one little off note. And not only did he hear the note, he knew exactly who had missed the note. And so he fined them $500. Now, I am not saying that God's in heaven. <laughs> if we do something silly saying, I gotcha, that's not our God, okay? I only use that illustration to point this out. If it mattered to James Brown how unified his band was, how much more should it matter to us as God's people how unified we are in the worship of our Lord? Like it should matter way more to us, way more to us. I, I, I love the fact that the name of our church has meaning. We're Anthem Church. So here's how it goes. God is a great composer, and he is right now active in the world composing the beautiful and eternal song or anthem of his glory and all of us each and every one of us is born a single lone rogue note a sinful note a we're in the key of me that's our notes me pride lust gossip all of that me and then god by his grace he takes us a me note a sinful lone rogue note and he transforms us into a him note and he scores us into his song. So now we're not alone adrift in the world, just ugly dissonance. No, we are now in tune with this melody that God is creating, this, this eternal song that God is writing. So despite all of our moral shortcomings and despite our spiritual failures, despite all of our sin, we get to be part of God's song, a melody, a melody. So I, I got to ask, like, are you part of God's song? Have you said yes to the great composer? Are you still just a me note or are you a hymn note in his song? Have you said yes to the Lord and given your life to follow after Christ? And, and those of us who say yes to the Lord, it's our privilege to be a melody. A privilege to sing with in unity with God's people, not soloing, not riffing, not doing our own thing, but in tune, in rhythm, in unified one heart one mind one spirit one melody lived unto the lord folks we're not a liturgical church we're not a high church church we're not a pentecostal church we're not a traditional church we're not a contemporary church we're not a frozen chosen church we're not a dancing in the aisles church you know what we are? We're something new. We're something different, something unique. We're anthem. We are a God-centered, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalted, mission-minded church. That's what we are. And when we gather together, you know what we need to put forth? Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Anyone ever ask you what kind of church anthem is? That. Imitators of God as beloved children walking in love as Christ loved us, sacrificed himself for us. Do you recognize how much God loves you? I mean, honestly, like, it's, it's an amazing thing to really start to ponder. God, creator, sovereign, ruler, nailed to a cross. Right before that, back whipped, thorns on his head, bleeding, broken, slapped in the face, spit upon, hung up naked. And that he was willing to do that for you. Folks, that's love, is it not? And the way that we respond to that in our worship, it should be full of joy. It should be full of effervescence, full of like just saturated it with passion. It should be emotional. Our hearts should be involved. There should be true sentiment, heartfelt you don't know this because I'm usually here on the front row, but typically on a Sunday morning, I have my back to you, and usually at some point during the music, I'll have tears rolling down my cheeks. And I sing loud, I think. I try to. 
And I raise my hands, folks. It should be, there should be an effervescence to our worship. But always, always sober, lucid, clear, disciplined, and in control. It's like this. It's like surfing a tsunami. When you sit back and you really start to ponder who God is, his greatness, and what he's done for us, his love, folks, it should hit us like a Mack truck. Right? But it's not like this tsunami of truth and grace and glory hits us and it sweeps us off to where we're flailing and out of control. No, the Holy Spirit comes to us. Let me show you how to surf it. There's control. There's enjoyment when I'm surfing grace and glory and truth. Not when I'm flailing about out of control. By the Spirit, we are made complete. By the Spirit, we are united together By the Spirit, we are a melody lived out to the Lord. Folks, that's why we sing. That's how we sing. So I ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's take a moment just to praise God in the privacy of our own heart, to worship him where we're sitting. You know, and this this really, this conversation makes no sense until a person accepts Christ. Christ as Lord and Savior. So if you're here today and you've never given your life to follow Jesus, would you do that now? Confess your sin to him. He knows it. He loves you anyway. Just know no matter what you've done, God's grace is there. You cannot out his grace. Jesus paid for it all. He made it possible for you to know him you just reach out to him and say, yes, Lord, score me into your song. Cleanse me. I, you turn me into a hymnal. Is that you this morning? So for the rest of us, is our, are, we, are we worshiping the Lord well? First of all, we ask in God to complete the work that he began in us, to fill us, to make us more like Jesus. Are we growing as worshipers, meaning are we growing as imitators of Christ? Is our worship vertical and horizontal where we're giving praise to God and honoring him and simultaneously loving the person next to us? Folks, we are the church. And it's for us to decide whether or not we want to live as if Christ is all to us, whether he's our heart's desire and our soul's fulfillment. Lord, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We give you our lives, our praise, and our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name.